0: Welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat Podcast, where our purpose is to grow your life and change the world. In this episode, we sit down with Katrina M. Adams. Katrina is a former professional tennis player, current American tennis executive, and former president and CEO of the United States Tennis Association. Today, she will discuss her professional career and how it prepared her for leadership, the current state of tennis, and so much more. Let's get started
1: hi how are you well good afternoon katrina very pleased to meet you hello
2: likewise thanks.
1: how are you good thanks for joining us I, I think i know you you got an email but i just want to introduce myself and explain we're so sorry lewis can't get to do this uh, today it was just a last minute glitch
2: yeah, yeah uh, no worries I, I understand how these things go
1: and not wanting to presume more on your time and trying to rearrange so so thank you you're uh, gracious i appreciate it so um my name's Andy Butcher, and uh, I'm kind of one of the behind-the-scenes guys at Waymaker on the editorial side of the magazine. I handle a lot of that work, so uh, I'm uh, I'm pinch hitting for for Lewis today. But I'm I'm glad to, uh, glad to get to be with you and appreciate uh, the time. And obviously, you know something about Waymaker and the magazine and the mission: um, grow your life and change the world. We're always looking for people we can get to speak with who are both. Um, inspirational but who can also but who also can be aspirational so people can think yes you know I want to do that I could do that and then hopefully draw out of you some of how how people might get to do that so with all that said thank you for joining us uh, today appreciate it
2: no it's my pleasure
1: just wanted to get to talk with you a little bit about your career your experiences and your insights Um, yeah sure so let, let's start. I've read recently about participation by minority groups, Black and people of color and others, has re- in tennis has risen significantly over the last period. Tell us something about that and why that's happening and what it means.
2: Yeah, you know, I think people of color in tennis, um, that population has grown probably over the last 25 years uh, exponentially, and it started with Venus and Serena. Um, coming on the scene and and Venus doing what she did early on in her career and then Serena uh, following in her footsteps and you know each of them have have gone their way I mean Venus has uh, won six major titles Serena's won 23 arguably the greatest of all time in the open era for sure Uh, just one shy of Margaret Court but you know 24 some of those were running one pre-open era Um, but really being the role models that they were and allowing our kids of color to aspire to be like them um, and want to be like them. And I think there are, you've heard um, articles or interviews from people like Sloane Stevens and Madison Keyes and Taylor Townsend, who said they idolized and looked up to Venus and Serena when they were younger. Um, and now, you know, Sloane has won her her major title. Madison's been to the finals of a major. Taylor's been to the finals of doubles. Um and then we now we have Coco Goff, another youngster of color that's coming up and doing extremely well. And Francis TFO on the men's side. So I think it's, you know, over the years it's been growing. I think there's been a, a resurgence perhaps in the last couple of years because of Coco Goff and, and Francis TFO, who are now young and aspiring that next generation of, of kids who are their same age or a little younger. But there's been efforts around America in particular to to put more emphasis on these programs, um, particularly with the NJTLs, which is the National Junior Tennis and Learning Network. Um, NJTLs were co-founded back in 1969 with Arthur Ashe, Sheridan Snyder, and Charlie Pasarell, a Black, a Puerto Rican, and a Caucasian. And so with the emphasis on being diverse and inclusive, and going into these underserved communities, bringing tennis um, to, to the population. And it has grown exponentially over the years. I, I run the Harlem Junior Tennis and Education Program, which is an NJTL chapter. And so there's a lot of emphasis on making sure that we can provide tennis to underserved communities, um, free or to you know close to free of charge um, and getting them engaged, excited, uh, passionate about the sport, uh, being inspired, and, and not so much to ultimately be that professional tennis player, but using the the sport as a tool to earn a college scholarship, understanding the life skills that are learned through sport with discipline, your behavior, your intensity, uh, building your self-esteem, your, your, your self-confidence, um, understanding how to deal with adversity, I think I mentioned that, but um, all the things that you need to do to be successful in life. And so we're excited to see the numbers continuing to grow. And I think they will, you know, even um, surpass the numbers in the future. And this is for the entire BIPOC community.
1: How uh, historically or previously was it or has it been that tennis has been either, you know, privileged or elitist or how, how did that ever happen in the first place?
2: Well, I mean, when tennis e- evolved here in the U.S., um, people of color or Black people were not allowed to compete in the U.S. LTA events back in the day. Um, that's when it was the U.S. United States Lawn and Tennis Association. So Althea Gibson was the first one in 1950 to be able to play in the U.S. Nationals, which is now known as the U.S. Open. So from, from the early stages, Blacks were not allowed to compete in those tournaments. However, Tennis in the black communities so has always been prevalent. It was always a, um, I guess people with means in particular um, was were playing. All of our doctors and lawyers were playing tennis um, back in the you know turn of the century in the, in the 1900s. Um, the ATA, Ana- American Tennis Association, was founded in 1914. You'd have to, you'd have to uh, clarify that date for me, but. Um, that's where all of our Blacks competed. We had national tournaments, um, regional tournaments here in America that they played in. Arthur Ashe, Althea played in them. I played in them. Zena Garrison, Lori McNeil, Harman, Harmon, um, Mal Washington, and, and a slew of others played in these tournaments growing up because that's what we could play. Um, and so I think the elitist part of it was it was more of a country club sport. Um, early on, more so than a public park sport, it did evolve to public parks, and public parks were vibrant back in the seventies um, in tennis. and And I think um, you know we've we've kept that that growing over the years, or maybe there's been a resurgence in the last decade of of public park tennis um, in particular.
1: How significant do you see this growing, you know, representation and participation, both not just within tennis, but sports generally? I'm thinking, you know, post you know, George Floyd, you know, we've had this conversation as we call it nationally over these last two or three years. And there are obviously issues like, you know, violence and uh, financial diversity. How significant is sport in terms of diversity and inclusion compared to some of these other issues? You know, what does it represent to me?
2: Yeah, I think sport kind of breaks down the political lines and the, yeah. and the biases in and, and, and everyday life. Um, you know, it's, sport is inclusive. You need, you're looking at the best athletes, the best talent that are in, the, in their respective sports, on their respective teams. Tennis is an individual sport, um, but yet you start in a group environment for learning. Um, and, you know, sport is, is really the means of breaking down uh, racial biases and, and bringing people together. And and I think that's one of the reasons I love sports so much. I mean, I'm, I'm tennis was my sport, but I grew up playing basketball, strikeout, softball. You know, I could throw a football. Um, I did a little track. I did all those things because it was it was very inclusive, and I didn't feel uh, I didn't feel that um, there was bias there or prejudice in in any form or fashion. Um because I was out there competing with everyone else, trying to do the best like everyone else and and try to win, you know the event like everyone else. Um, so I think it's it's imperative today, in particular, with resurgence of uh, you know a lot of the political biases, the race biases, ethnic biases here in the u s in particular, that our kids are even more engaged in sport because it's an outlet. It's an outlet to go out and and let off some steam. Um, get those endorphins going. Um, be healthier. You know, opens and frees up your mind more um, with getting exercise, and, and that's something that uh, tennis, being one of the healthiest sports in um, in the world, um, and that's that's proven. Um, you know, we need to get more people out there to to be, to reap the benefits of the sport overall, particularly for healthy benefits.
1: I'm interested, obviously, as a, a tennis person, you say it's one of the health. Can you just explain that for me? How is that? what What's the factors there that it's one of the healthiest sports? Is it less damaging on the body or what what's, um what's yeah,
2: I'd, I'd have to pull up the the source. but I mean, in the last year or two, it was one of the top three healthy sport, healthiest sports. And it's for okay. cardiovascular. It's for the fitness. um it's for for mind. It's really mind, body, and soul. if you ask me. Um, when right. you're going out, you're you're focusing on what you're doing. You're able to kind of forget about all the stressors behind you. Yeah. You're getting fit by running around. It's an anaerobic sport, but yet you're you're working cardiovascularly as well, and um, and it's fun. So, you know, those are those are three components that you need to to have a healthy lifestyle.
1: So, uh, Katrina, you you've, you've uh, experienced great success. You know, as a player. And then as an executive leader, if you will, within sport, you know, over your career, both, and it's sad that we have to say this, but both as a woman and as a black woman, right? You've managed to do that, you know, as, right? And that's the, what sort of challenges and obstacles did you have to overcome to get to some of those achievements? And as the situation changes, the playing field, if you will, any better for young women coming up now in your
2: wake? Yeah, I think the most important thing was you know, having an aspiration to want to be the leader. Um, I was on the board for many years, and so never thought about wanting to be the president um, and chairman of the board in the first five or six years that I was on the board. But after that, started realizing that, yeah, this is something that I wanted to do. So I had the aspiration, and, and from that, you start to really... Um, operate in a different manner, particularly when you're in the boardroom, you're paying attention a little bit more, you're doing a little more research, you're reading all of your documents and and really learning the business as a whole. Um, You know, I was on the budget committees, which is important. Uh, Once I became uh, an officer as a vice president, uh, then became a member of the compensation committee. So I'm really, really got my teeth, uh, was able to sink my teeth into the overall business and and understanding and seeing myself saying, what can I do to make a difference? How can I be the best leader for this organization? So it, it's really, it starts with a dream and, and aspirations. It wasn't really a dream more so than growing into a knowledge base to say, this is what I want to do. And, and just watching the success of others, um, you know, inspired me to say, I want to do this, but also knowing that no, person of color no black person in particular had been the leader was probably one of my biggest inspirations to to want to elevate myself and and prepare myself for the opportunity when that time came
1: did you uh, experience or observe any particular resistance or opposition because you're both a woman because of your color or
2: no our board was very diverse um you know for many years i think when i joined the board in in 2005 um, maybe in 2003 was a, was the start of their initiative of really making sure that the board was more diverse with women as well as people of color and so over time that grew that grew um became stronger um became stronger but in and in, in the role of officers and president that had not happened yet um and so i was the second officer um, I think in 1989, um, Dwight Mosley was the treasurer um, at that time. And then he unfortunately passed away a couple of years later from cancer, but no one else had had broken the barrier of being an officer. And and so I was the first since Dwight, but I was the first Black woman since, since Dwight. I was the fourth female president. So that wasn't a, a barrier breaker. But I was the first former professional tennis player who understood the sport from the grassroots all the way up, particularly since I grew up in an inner city of Chicago um, in the park system. And, under, and that's a large population that we serve as far as community tennis, grassroots tennis players in the park. So it wasn't a lot of opposition for me? I think that's what really helped me. Um, I'm sure there were not I'm sure. there were definitely some naysayers. That were were thought that I couldn't do it or didn't want me to do it for whatever reason, but that was something that probably motivated me more so than deterred me from from going after it.
1: What I've read um, in the media, you you've been known in your leadership for being. Uh, Frank and forthright and and saying what you think, which uh, in these days when everything is spun and politicized and you know talking points, is somewhat unusual. What, uh, yeah, how? What made you decide that you were going to be your person, if you will? You know what I mean? And,
2: uh, I've always been my person. I think uh, I owe it all to being a tennis player and being a professional tennis player and and being able to go out and perform in front of you know thousands and ultimately millions when you're on television and, mm-hmm. and being yourself. I never held back um, on the court physically as to, as to what my game style was. I was a serve and volleyer. So I was an aggressive player um, because I have an aggressive personality. I'm not a person that just sits back and, 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 and being passive in any way. So um, always had that confidence as a kid, always spoke out as a kid. Uh, My mom used to tell me that I've I've been here before um, because of the wisdom that I had at a very young age. And I've carried Hmm. that through um, throughout my life. And so through my competitive um, days uh, in tennis, from being a coach in tennis, being a commentator where you're pretty frank about what you're seeing and and you're very direct, um, I brought all of that to the table um, in this role. And and I had a lot of support. I mean, listen, it wasn't me. I had a full board that supported me. I had an amazing staff that supported me and guided me when, when I needed it. And so an understanding that it wasn't a, a one-woman show, this is a full team effort, um, gave me the opportunity to feel comfortable when I did make mistakes because no one's perfect. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's learning from those mistakes to, to make you stronger, better, uh, more prepared, more knowledgeable. As you go forward, and and I had a great opportunity in learning from mistakes, but also reaping the rewards of the successes um, that um, me and my team had.
1: You've spoken, um, excuse me, a little bit about what you've learned from playing. I'm just curious: are there different things that you've learned, different skills you've applied as a as a leader from playing as a single player and playing doubles, playing with somebody else? Are there different? Things that you've learned there about leadership about teamwork
2: oh absolutely I mean when you're playing singles it's it's all you right it's you <laughs> yeah. it's you the ball the court and, and your opponent of a, it's a puzzle right you're trying to put the pieces together to be perfect and, and to come out with a finished product and which which would, which would be a win um when you're playing doubles it's about teamwork it's about communication it's about understanding one another it's about being the yin and the yang. Um, It's about being passive and aggressive and bringing that together. Uh, It's about having the perfect chemistry uh, with one another to be able to execute and and go out with a win. It's no different than what we do in business. And and finding that chemistry with people, it's about executing. It's about communication. It's about collaboration. It's about being accountable. Um, You know, in in doubles, you have to be accountable for your side of the court and, and what your role is on the team. And so, and and understanding what having balance is. So, being accountable, having balance, communicating, collaborating—these are all the things I call ABCs um, in in order to succeed in anything. Um, and it, it's definitely a, a team effort.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. We've talked a little bit about the shift in in participation in sport and kind of racial equality. What's the how? What's the situation in regards to women in sports? Have you seen an improvement in the years, even since you were a player in terms of both, you know, the fairness, the justice, the women in sport?
2: Well, I think I'll start with tennis. Um, Tennis has been the leader for women in sport, Um, you know, since the seventies, when we started our tour, Uh, the tour is is celebrating the 50th anniversary this year, uh, the WTA tour that is. And so, you know, and fighting for equality. Um, this is a this is the 50th anniversary of equal prize money at the U.S. Open um, fought by Billie Jean King. And so, yes, we've come a long way, but there's still a long way to go. Um, there's definitely um, more parity within our sport, um, more equality within our sport, but there's still disparity when it comes to um, some of our joint events that are not um grand slam tournaments where the men's prize money is as much greater than the women's prize money but they're playing in the same week the same venue the same fans et cetera. and that's something you know it has to do with two different tours doing their own contracts with whomever so um it, you know they're not at the table negotiating for the tournament they're negotiating for their tours but that's something that the wta has worked hard uh with over the years they've grown they've They've brought it closer, but there's still a long way to go. But having said that, I think women in other sport have looked to tennis to recognize that, hey, we deserve more. Um, You know, you look at the USWNT, the US Women's National Team in soccer, you know, finally getting their due when they were by far the more superior athletes and more successful than their male counterparts in the World Cup stage and national competitions. But why did it take so long? Right but they didn't they didn't pull back. they're there. Um, the us. hockey team has been working for the the same parity and, and equity uh, equality as well. Um, they'll get there. But when you look at you know a lot of our our women's professional soccer teams here in the US, um, you have a lot of our former professional athletes or current professional athletes that own teams. That are, are making sure that they can provide, and, and I'm, when I say professional athletes, I'm at like tennis, who actually own some of these soccer teams because they understand the importance of providing equitable places for our women to compete. And I think that's huge. Um, you know, so there's a there's a company or organization, Athletes Unlimited, which is a women's sport. Um, it's in its third or fourth year now. That started off with softball. It's they have lacrosse. Um, they have um, volleyball and just added basketball last year. They're short stints. They're about four to six weeks in seasons, but it's allowing these women to continue their professional endeavor and dreams in a small way, but yet giving them a, a center stage um, on national television with sponsors, et cetera, so that they can make a living or continue to make a living within their sport and stay in America to do it and not have to go overseas. So. You know, women's sport has definitely gotten better. We see the WNBA has been raising their bar in in the last years. It's taken way too long, in my opinion, for them to get to where they are now. It should have been where they are now 10 years ago. Um, But they're working on it and they're getting better. So sport for women has definitely strengthened over time, but we still have to be stronger. We've seen uh,
1: a growing discussion over the last maybe couple of years in sport in general, and specifically within the tennis world, about the importance of mental health. Um, how does that compare to your experiences when you were uh, playing? And do you see this as a positive thing? How, what, what kind of changes are you seeing?
2: Yeah, I mean, there are more and more players, male and female, that are coming out and talking about their their mental health or mental instability. And you know, we as athletes have always been looked upon as being strong or, you know, and when you when you're weak or feeling mentally weak, you're told to suck it up. Right. Or there's no crying in sport. There's no this There's no that. It was it was more of a tough love approach to athletes, um, elite athletes in particular, in being their best. Yes, it's important to kind of overcome some adversity. But at the end of the day, we're human. And and humans are fragile and humans have to be nurtured. And I think many of our athletes have been abused is not the word that I want, but have been um, overlooked with um, their mental health challenges over time. And you you can only be pushed so far before you break. And I think when you see our our leading champions in various sports now talking about it, it opens up the door and the can of worms for a lot of these athletes. Oh, my gosh, I'm not the only one that's felt this way. I thought it was just me. I thought I was losing my mind. I thought I was, you know, feeling depressed or what have you. It's like, yeah, I actually am. And so these athletes are now speaking up and speaking out to help others. I don't think it's selfish for them to, to, I mean, you know, they're taking a risk by stepping out on the limb and, and saying, Hey, I, I need to take a break for my mental well being," because it wasn't so accepted 20, 30, 40, you know, 20 years and, and longer um, as it is, or even 10 years ago, just in the last five years, really have we started to hear more stories, um, see more documentaries and 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 understand the challenges of of mental health in our sport and i think tennis has been the leader in trying to counter that um or support it not counter it but support it particularly on the wta side they've had a program in place for many many years through their um through their health sciences department and i think it's imperative that all sports need to have um, someone there that they can lean, that these athletes can lean on and, and confide in to find the support that they need off the road. Because when you're a tennis player, depending on where you are in the world, you know, you think about the people from the land down under in Australia or New Zealand. They're on the road for nine months out of the year. They don't go back and forth. They don't have the luxury to go back and forth, right? And they have to choose to schedule wisely. Whereas in America, the tournaments are here. You take a couple of weeks off. You can come home. You know, depending on where they are in Europe, we come back. Right, we're kind of in the center of the world, if you will. And in Europe, you know, the Europeans. I mean, every country is like their state, so they have time to go back home um, to kind of regroup and 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 recover physically and mentally. But I think it's imperative that we continue to keep an eye on the mental health of our athletes in all sport, men and women. Um, and embrace them and not and not try to point fingers and, and have blame on in any form of fashion.
1: And the fact that as role models, you know, sports figures as role models are talking, that's got to be encouraging to, you know, young people, regular folks, to be able to say, well, hey, I can talk about this as well, right?
2: I think it's incro- I think it's imperative because our young people are dealing with way more stressors than we ever imagined. You know, when we were teenagers or in our early twenties, as as competitors, um, you know, with everything that's going on in the world, I feel like there's so much pressure with America, in particular, going backwards in some some way when it comes to racial equalities, um, and that's a lot of stress on on our our, our people of color in particular. Um, social media is is a huge stressor for these athletes of today. You know, they ride or die on the likes and the loves and the comments and everything that are being made. And sometimes you're just too young or too mentally fragile to to deal with some of the responses that you're getting. Um, And so I think our our professional athletes are definitely role models to these young people um, when they can speak, step up and speak out about maybe some of the cyber abuse that they've received um, themselves. In, in trying to nurture and support some of the young the younger generations, yeah.
1: now, I know you're involved in in many aspects of sport and so on, but tell us a little bit, specifically, if you could, about the uh, Whitney Young High School and the uh, right, the Katrina Adams tennis court there This a kind of a passion project, right?
2: Uh, well, yeah, so I, I went to Winnie Young, um, graduated in 1985, won, um, we won a city championship four years while I was there. I won state championship as an individual um, my junior and senior year. Um, and then a couple of years ago, the school won the team state championship for the first time in Chicago public school history. And so, um, you know, it's a definitely a, a place of passion for me. Uh, the project itself was something that I started when I was president of the USCA, and, and wanting to help them um, resurface the courts. They hadn't been resurfaced since I was in school, but yet our <laughs> girls and boys were out there practicing and competing on these, you know, cracked-up courts for for many years. And so it was well overdue for them to be resurfaced. Um, what I did not know is that the school and 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 the powers that be wanted to rename the courts after me. And I don't know if it was their initial goal, I never asked, or if it was because um, of the support that I provided um, over the years for them. But nevertheless, uh, it was definitely a surprise to me uh, when I found out, I knew they wanted me to, we were trying to find dates that worked between myself and the then principal, Dr. Joyce Kenner, Um, And we couldn't get our dates to match for availability to do a press release and and a grand opening, but it finally came last summer. And um, I didn't know it until a week before a friend of mine who had driven by the courts or had gone over there, took a picture and sent it to me. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? So I had to call the guy that was the head of the project. I said, why didn't you tell me? He goes, oh, you didn't know? so kind of in a way that he knew I didn't know um but what an honor you know uh, to 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 know that i have left a legacy on my high school um a legacy of every child that walks in to those courts can say who is Katrina M Adams um every adult that plays tennis over there it's in a public park you know will will know or learn more about me and, and what my my legacy is. So, um, you know, to so have that there in perpetuity is, is the greatest honor that anyone can be um, bestowed.
1: You've, you've spoken um, about, um, <laughs> excuse, excuse me. Hello, sorry. <clears throat> um About, um, sorry, I've lost. <laughs> oh no, it's fine. Totally lost my track here for a second. I apologize about
2: that. This is why we're recording and this that's, is not a video interview. It's, it's that's, for written. It's, yeah, that's, it's good. that's
1: absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. You spoke about how you were, you, you were played across sports, right? You know, all forms so of what was it particularly? And when was it that you realized that tennis was the, your thing? How did that come about?
2: Oh, I realized it immediately. I mean, I was I was six when I picked up my racket, so I was the ultimate tomboy when I was a kid. And at four, five, and six, I was playing all these other sports already: um, strike him out, um, softball, you know, throwing a football, shooting a basketball. Only because my oldest brother was was more athletic, and and I was kind of his tag along. I was his escape his escape weapon. So whenever he wanted to go somewhere, if he took his little sister he could go, right? Because of course, parents think yep. kids are not going to be mischievous if you have a little sister with them. But I was right alongside with them. Um, but when I did pick up tennis, you know, the program was actually for nine to 18 year olds. It was a, a summer program that was sponsored by the Martin Luther King Jr. Boys Club in Chicago. It wasn't Boys and Girls Club then. But we were, um, you know, that's where we went. And my my brothers were, um a part of their activity. So every summer was a different activity from camping one year to biking to whatever it was. Tennis was the event that summer. And my parents happened to teach summer school that year. So I was a tag along sister and I was too young to be in the program because it was for 9 to 18 year olds and I was 6. I was turning 7 later that month, but still I was 6. And um so I literally sat outside the fence for 2 weeks and you know and I'm a visual learner so figured out what to do and definitely what not to do. And I just was, you know, itching to get out there every day and I wasn't allowed. And I finally wore the coaches down and my parents down to let me participate because I was a good kid. So I wasn't being rambunctious or mischievous or, you know, it was better to have me on the inside of the fence than outside. Let me tell you <laughs> that. Um, and so, you know, when I went out there from the first ball, I struck, you know, over the net into the court, you know, middle of the string. I was like, wow, this is awesome. And then it just kind of grew from there. But, um, you know, my coach, one of the coaches of the summer program was Tony Fox, who thought I had potential and um, talked my parents into letting him give me um, private lessons once the school year started, because remember, this was summer. I started playing indoors, you know, once a week, then I started playing uh, in a, program indoors um at a field house in washington park on a basketball court once a week until the next summer we could go outdoors i started playing at lake meadows tennis club Um, and from that you know and just kind of grew from there my first tournament was the ata nationals in new orleans in 1976 so you know one year later i'm playing and competing in a tournament um in the 10 and under event and i finished second I think it was a little small draw, but I won two matches and then I lost in the finals um, to somebody much, much bigger than me. But I was a big girl at seven because I was seven at that time, turning eight. But anyways, it was, uh, I knew right from the start that that was my sport. Um, it was, you know, it was fun. It was active. I was running. I was hitting. I was jumping. I was doing all the things that I love to do all in one sport. So it was great.
1: As you look back over your career, is there one particular match that just stands out for you? From you know, that sums up the whole thing.
2: Um, you know, I mean, I, I would say there there are a few. Um, I would say in my rookie year. You mean On um, you mean as a professional or? Yes. Yeah, as a professional. Yeah, I would say in my rookie year, um, I had a couple. I would say. Um. I guess in February, yeah, February, with, I turned pro in January. So February, late February, I played doubles with Zena Garrison. The first time we were on the court together, played the Virginia Slams with Boca Raton, and we won. Um, and we beat all the big giants and the big names that you can think of, um, from Cody Kilsch and Sokova as a team, to Pam Shriver and Betsy Nagelson, um, Pascal Parody and Natalie Harriman. Um and we won the tournament. I think every tour, I think every match was in three sets. But yeah, it was like wow. You know, I've arrived. This is awesome. And it was a high level tournament for us at the, on the Virginia Slims tour at the time. It was just under a Grand Slam as far as status was concerned. So that was huge for me. I also, you know, I, I'd lost to, um, Sokova in three sets, three tiebreak sets, which was an amazing match. Um, you know, had a couple of match points here and there. And and didn't didn't win, but you know you learn from your losses, right? Later on, and uh, at Wimbledon, I got to the fourth round, upset it, upsetting it a couple seeds along the way, losing to Chris Severd in three sets. Um, someone whose whose racket is over there. I grew up playing with her, her uh, autographed racket, um, you know. And you kind of like, wow, this is full circle. And um, and then maybe in, in the end of the year. Uh, Zine and i won the world doubles championships in japan um beating all the great teams and you know it was just it was a those are all matches that that stand out because it was a mark of all the hard work that i put into from a junior and collegiate player uh you know played at northwestern for two years won the ncaa doubles with my partner diane Donnelly, my sophomore year and um yeah, I mean, there are other others throughout my career, but I would say those were the most significant for me that really continue to stand out.
1: Just a couple more questions. I don't want to presume too much on your time, but we've spoken a little bit about the life lessons from being on the court. Here's one that intrigues me. You know, there's been, I'm sure there have been times where you've had to kind of claw back to victory right you've had to come back what what have you learned about comeback i'm thinking of people who are reading here who have maybe had some failure you know relationship work some dream something hasn't gone right what 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 are, what lessons are there any is there any advice you give for make you know making a successful comeback
2: yeah i think the most important thing is is be true to yourself and understanding what your goals are um, and if you if you have goals if you have aspirations you know, you you have to work hard and be disciplined to go for them. Um, don't let anybody get in your way. Don't let anyone say that what you can't do. There's no such thing as I can't. You may not have been able to do something or accomplish something to date, but it doesn't mean that you can't accomplish it down the road if it's, if it's something that you're preparing yourself for. I mean, it's all about making a difference in anything that you do. And my subtitle in my book on their arena is getting ahead, making a difference and succeeding as the only one. And I don't do anything that I don't feel I can't make a difference in. Um, And it's not about going to the top in anything. It's just making sure that I'm contributing. So if you feel that you are contributing to something that you aspire to go further or higher up, it's the discipline and dedication um, and commitment that you have to make to yourself first before you can make it to others and 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 that's what coming back means it's just clawing your way in and and making a difference losses we lose more in tennis or in sport than before you win right particularly when you're developing it's the same thing in business when you get your job you are developing in that company in your role and there are going to be some losses there are going to be some letdowns there are going to be some some contracts that you're you're not going to get, but you go back to the drawing board to figure out how can you do better the next go around, the next opportunity that you have. And, and that's the, that's the dedication and the discipline that is needed in order to be successful. So don't give up, don't ever give up on, on what that dream is, because that's what keeps you motivated and aspired and um, to be your best, but at the ultimate end of it, if you are successful, then you're not only empowering yourself, you can empower others to to go after their their aspirations. In the end,
1: I'm glad you mentioned your book because mentoring and coaching the next generation or upcoming leaders is an important aspect of what you do, right?
2: Mentoring is key. I think you you know we don't get anywhere alone. Um, you have to give credit where credit is due, but then you also have to be obligated to reach back and pull forward and be that mentor to someone else and, and guide them and be that listener um, that many people need because they're far and few in between. Um, you know, you have your mentors that are there to support you, but then you have your sponsors that are that are there to help lift you up and pull you up the ranks based on what you're contributing to to your company or your organization. So one, you want to understand the difference of the two. We need to have allies as women. We need to have male allies um, to understand that sometimes you need the guy to speak up for you and to make those recommendations, um, particularly if they believe in what you're doing and, is, and is, has experienced your hard work and understanding um, that there's an opportunity for you, right? And so that's imperative. And I think, you know, some one of the things that I focus on um, in my volunteer world with the ITF is I chair the Advantage All Committee, which focuses on gender equality in tennis, not, not on the court, but off the court um, and officiating and coaching um, and, and getting on boards, getting on committees, et cetera. But it's really an opportunity to teach people. Teaches the wrong word, to inspire people to understand that there has to be gender equity in all things that we do. Um, we focus on five pillars, which is creating balance, understanding that there has to be a balance in, in how we communicate, who's sitting at the table, who's making decisions, um, that there has to be a voice for women because we're bringing a diversity of thought to the conversation, to the table. We're changing the culture of of how business is done in so many different ways. We're adding value to the the organization or the business or the conversation um, with our own knowledge. And we're empowering all to embrace us as women and as leaders so that we can empower our our businesses and organizations to to go out and, and be successful.
1: You said we, none of us get where we are kind of alone, and that's part of the Waymaker thing. We always like to ask people can you think, can you name, particularly in your life, maybe one or two particular Waymakers who were significant in helping you become who you are and where you are today?
2: Oh, wow. My parents made a way for me to, to be who I am. Um, they, they gave a lot of sacrifices, they were teachers, you know, we were a middle class um, family um, in inner city, Chicago. And, and they made a way for me to, um, get to my, get to my lessons, to pay for my lessons, to get me to tournaments nationwide and ultimately globally. Um, so they are my way makers, uh, if you will. Um, most of the coaches, if not all of the coaches that I, that I worked with made a way for me to have the opportunity to be on their courts. Um, they gave me free lessons whenever they could, Club owners gave me free court time whenever they could. So those are all the people that made a way for me as as an athlete. I would say my waymakers in um, my my business life. Um, Billie Jean King has been a mentor of mine who has always inspired me and, and never um, never shied away from giving advice when when I asked. Um, and you know, Stacy Allister. Um, Who was a former CEO of the WTA and now the chief professional of tennis at the USTA has always been someone I could lean on as women. I think, you know, my my female leaders um, who have been successful have always been there to support me when I needed. Andrea Hirsch, who's with the USTA, has been one of those people. One of my best friends, Roberta Graves, who was who was very successful um, in the corporate world before. Um, raising four kids uh, was my executive advisor um, when I became um, the president of the USCA and and just sharing her knowledge and expertise in areas. So I am quick to ask for support. And I I think others um, shouldn't shy away from asking for support. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength because you're confident in yourself enough in your abilities to be able to go and ask for support. And I think that's that's critical in in understanding, you know, you can you can pave your way, but you need others to help you make your way.
1: That's good. You mentioned your book uh, that you wrote, but I read also recently that you've diversified. You've written fiction as well. This sounds like it, right. You've written a novel.
2: Yeah, that my book Own the Arena, um making making a way, getting ahead and owning, owning um Getting ahead, making a difference as the only one. Yeah, right.
1: Two last quick questions here. I have to ask you about the boxing gloves behind you. (laughs)
2: Muhammad Ali, autographed.
1: Okay. Was he a a role model?
2: Uh... Uh, I mean, listen, he was an icon. Um, I would say a role model for someone who always spoke up and spoke out about his beliefs. He didn't shy away from what he believed in. Um, he was an incredible athlete, an incredible orator, um, and and inspired millions around the world with his work ethic, with his athleticism, um, with his uh, wittiness, et cetera. Uh, I've done work with his one of his daughters, uh, Layla Ali, in television. Um, so it's, it's nice to have some kind of connection to him as well, but I met him um, at this 1996 Olympics, um, when we hadn't seen him for years after, you know, and, um, so that was kind of a, you know, icing on the cake for me, um, to be able to, to meet someone that you, uh, admired and looked up to. I mean, he was in his prime when I was growing up, so I did get to witness his greatness.
1: Let me close with this and I turn the table. So as you think back over our conversation, is there anything that you think, you know what, he didn't ask me that and he should have done.
2: Um, no, I, I think, you know, I'm someone who has, has had several transitions professionally from transitioning from professional tennis to being uh, a coach. Um, so giving back and, and, and sharing my knowledge and expertise with, with the next generation of kids. I was a national coach for the USTA, um, for about four years, which was, uh, very rewarding for me. And I think rewarding for the kids that I worked with, who many of them went on to play professional tennis, but understanding how to transition from one role to the next and, and flipping the coin from being the, the professional tennis player where your time is yours to now being the coach and my time is everybody else's, um, wasn't easy to do. It was, it was hard work, um, but something that I enjoyed doing. I then made another pivot In transition to being a commentator, I was a first commentator on Tennis Channel alongside Barry Tompkins, who was a renowned um, play-by-play person in sport. This is our our 20th anniversary at Tennis Channel, so some of that old footage has resurfaced (laughs) from from that first uh, time when they flipped the switch to go live, which was pretty cool. Um, I still do that occasionally, not as much as I did probably for the first 10 years, or twelve years until I became when I became the president of the USCA, I had to kind of cut back on on many things, and I haven't delved back in that. But you know that was one transition, and then transitioning to to being that leader of the USCA, um, you know, which was very demanding, um, you know, very stressful, um, but very rewarding in the end. so it's it's understanding how to transition, you know, what are your goals? What do you aspire to to accomplish? In, in each of these arenas that you are entering. Um, and, and having been with the Harlem Junior Tennis and Education Program for 17 years now, um, you know' that's, that's my passion. That's, my, that's what's pulling my heartstrings and um, knowing that I am making a way for the next generation of kids in inner city Harlem and across the city to, to be their best selves on and off the court. Um, because I know what I got from the sport. And I'm hoping that if they can get half of what I got from the from the sport, then they will they will be successful.
1: Is there a principle or two then, just quickly to to close in terms of transition, moving from one thing to are there similar you know similar principles that you applied or adopted in each of those different transitions that people would be, would do well to to have in mind?
2: Yeah, I think that I think the key for me in, in transitioning and the the principles that I nailed down are, are one you know, writing down your goals. What is it that you want to accomplish in this arena, right? Because many of the many of the jobs can be much different than your previous one, or at least the organizations or companies can be. But what is it that you're bringing to the table? Understand what your strengths are so that you can utilize them on a daily basis. Understand what your weaknesses might be so that you can elevate those and become stronger. I have... What I've done in my recent years, particularly when I became the president of the USTA, is that I put together my own personal board. And so these are people that I surround myself with that have expertise in areas of my weakness and people that I can trust and and be confidants um, in in speaking um, business with and asking for their advice um, and they're going to tell me yes, no, or be indifferent about it. But they're going to—they're not my yes people. They are people that will say, you know what? I think you're going down the right path. This looks or sounds good, but you might want to rethink X or Y, or or ask the questions: Is this really—is this really what your final intent is? You're missing something, right? And so, you know, I'm not an expert in any one given thing. But there are ex- there are people who are experts in those things because I I wear a lot of hats and I'm all over the place and so in order for me to kind of focus, I can go to this person, this person, this person, um, whether it's financial, whether it's legal, whether it's marketing, whatever that might be, I have someone that that I can reach out to, and I think um, people don't understand the value. Of having a personal board, particularly when you get up the ladder, um, and and you have trust issues with people in your own network, because some thank, things are just confidential you. that you can't share.
1: So, mm. Mm. well, Katrina, uh, thank you so much for I greatly enjoyed that conversation. Really helpful. It's going to be inspiring to readers. Uh, so I appreciate you for your time. Thank you for all you've done for tennis and sports. Thanks, and Andy. Again, thank you for your time. It's been great to be with you today.
2: Yeah, I appreciate it. It's been awesome. And, you know, when the draft comes out, I hope to be able to proof it before it before it goes to print. All right. Okay, we'll be in touch. Okay, thank you very thank much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this conversation between Lewis Carr and Katrina Adams. What did you enjoy about this episode? Let us know on our social media at Waymaker Culture. Don't forget to claim your Waymaker Journal at waymakerjournal.com and be sure to enter the Waymaker giveaway by going to waymakercontest.com. Subscribe to the Waymaker Fireside Chat Podcast to get notifications each time we release an episode.